Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. New science warns we're maxing out the ocean's ability to absorb our carbon dioxide emissions. If you look at it as a carbon budget, then, yeah, we're being subsidized by the ocean. So if emissions grow too rapidly, the ocean really can't keep up. CO2 and the deep blue sea. Also, a science project that's pure poetry, trying to capture the smell of the season's first rain. In the Indian context, rain plays such such an important part. From the monsoons to the Bollywood romance, all of it is somewhere embedded in the rain. Sensual. Extremely sensual, meaning to the extent of erotic, first rain especially. Sense and sensibility, plus an appreciation for turkeys untamed. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Developments in both science and politics on climate change. The U.S. and China agreed to cooperate on cleaner and more efficient forms of energy. But world leaders downplayed expectations about next month's climate summit in Copenhagen. So political leaders sent mixed messages. But climate science sent a clear signal. The international scientists of the Global Carbon Project have a warning about the current trajectory of our CO2 emissions. Their new report, called the Global Carbon Budget, says we're on a path towards a catastrophic 11 degrees Fahrenheit rise in the planet's average temperature by the century's end. Woods Hole Research Center director Richard Houghton helped write the carbon budget. He says it compiles the latest data on carbon sources and sinks. We know we're emitting carbon dioxide through burning fossil fuels and through deforestation. But we don't know as well where the carbon is going. Only about half of what we release stays in the atmosphere. And the other half goes back, goes into the oceans or goes back onto land. Generally speaking, the sinks, the things that absorb carbon from the atmosphere, they're not keeping pace with the emissions is what you're finding. They're not quite keeping up, and that's the worry. I mean, the point is that nature has been being good to us, and as these sinks get saturated or start to fill up, they will not take up as large a fraction of what's emitted. Houghton's report says natural storehouses of carbon have become slightly less efficient over the past 50 years or so. And two other new studies give a deeper insight into one of the most important carbon sinks, the ocean. Oceans have been taking up close to a third of all the CO2 humans generate. But research in the current issue of the journal Nature suggests we've pushed the CO2 storage of the seas to the limit. Columbia University oceanographer Samar Katiwala wrote that paper, and he's with us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Um, Thanks for inviting me on your program. Well, what did your study find about uh, oceans and their ability to take up our CO2? So what we discovered is that starting in about the 1950s or so, there was a really sharp increase in ocean CO2 uptake driven by the very explosive growth in emissions. That uptake is still increasing today, but at a slower pace so that over time, the oceans are absorbing a much smaller proportion 
of total human CO2 emissions. In fact, as much as 10% less compared with just 10 years ago. So just in the past decade, it's 10% less compared to the emissions we're putting out there. Right. The proportion of emissions that the ocean takes up has gone down by about 10%. Even though the oceans are still absorbing more CO2 than, than I guess they ever have, right? That's correct. That, in absolute terms, the oceans are increasingly absorbing CO2. Uh, it's currently about 2.3 billion tons per year. To 2.3 billion tons? That's, that's how much the ocean is absorbing every year? Is that right? That's correct. It represents about one-fourth of total human CO2 emissions. Um, or to put it another way, it's about six years' worth of U.S. gasoline consumption. So it's a very sizable sink for human CO2 emissions. So why is the uh, ocean's ability to absorb the CO2 lessening? What's, what's going on there? The ocean circulation is really very sluggish. So if emissions grow too rapidly, the ocean really can't keep up. The other reason is what we like to call ocean chemistry. Basically, as CO2 dissolves in seawater, the ocean becomes more acidic and its capacity to take up more carbon in the future declines. So it's really a combination of these two factors, ocean circulation um, and ocean acidification, that's combining to give this reduced uptake, relative uptake of ocean CO2. So essentially, it's just uh, it can't keep up with the emissions that we're pumping out there. Exactly. That's right. Almost everything, all the feedbacks between climate and the ocean are such that this problem can only get worse. You know, the ocean is going to get more acidic, There's nothing to prevent that. The ocean might warm up in the future, and that's going to release or make CO2 less soluble in water, for example. So all of these different factors put together suggest that CO2, relative CO2 uptake going into the future is going to decline. I mean, that doesn't doesn't bode well, does it? Not in the long term. You know, in, in the short term, it's a small change. But once you start extrapolating into the future... It's, it's clearly going to be an important factor. If you look at the total amount of man-made carbon in the oceans at present, it's about 150 billion tons of carbon, which, if I want to put that into some kind of context, uh, if you took all this carbon and you put it into the atmosphere, then atmospheric CO2 would be about 20% higher, or about 460 parts per million. Wow. A lot of scientists think that if you want to avoid sort of dangerous climate change, we should be limiting future CO2 to about 450 parts per million. So that chunk alone would already put us over right there. Yeah, that would, that would definitely put us over. So the ocean is really doing its part in sort of preventing that from happening. Um, you know, it's giving us three or four decades of time so we can get our act together and hopefully reduce emissions. So I guess the, the takeaway lesson here is nature's kind of been cutting us some slack. We've been pumping a lot of CO2 emissions up there, and the oceans have been uh, sucking a lot of it up, but um, we're, we're kind of maxing out our account here, aren't we? That's right. It's, uh, if you look at it as a carbon budget, then, yeah, we're being subsidized by the ocean and the land. But uh, the free lunch might be over. That's correct, yeah. Professor Samar Kadiwala, thanks very much. Thank you for having me on your program. Now, the takeaway message from Professor Kadiwala's study, of course, is that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Another report also suggests ways we can help the oceans help us with our carbon debt. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature asked scientists to focus on the role of coastal ecosystems in the carbon cycle. 
conservation international oceanographer Emily Pigeon found these relatively small parts of the planet have a huge capacity to soak up CO2. There are three main systems that we've looked at in this report that seem to be able to sequester large amounts of carbon. And they are the tidal salt marshes that are found all around the world. In the US, we see them all the way along the Atlantic coast and in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, mangroves, which are a sort of very dominant part of any tropical or subtropical coastline. And then seagrasses, which occur globally. We see them a lot in the Caribbean, including in Florida and then throughout the Mediterranean and many other places. Now, I think we all know that these are pretty important ecosystems, but why are they important in terms of, uh, of the carbon cycle? Well, all plants, whether they be on land or in the ocean, sequester carbon in a number of different ways. The one that we perhaps are more familiar with is absorbing the carbon um, and using it to grow. So then the carbon is stored in the actual plant itself. So whether it be the large trunk of an enormous tree in the uh, Amazon forest or in the leaves of a small seagrass. But the other way that plants also sequester carbon is by burying it in the soil or the sediment below them. And these marine plants or marine ecosystems seem to be incredibly effective at this second type of carbon sequestration, this burying it in the sediment below them. Why is that? There's a couple of different ways they do it. The two main ones are they have these incredibly deep root systems. Uh, if you can imagine, they're all living in the, uh, the sort of tidal or wave-dominated part of the coast, and they're holding on for dear life with these deep root systems. And it's through this deep root system that they can pull carbon out of either the water or the air and then pump it down into the sediment and then push it out. There is also uh, these areas that are really good for capturing sediment that is in the shallow water. And by doing that, that settles down and also captures lots of carbon that way. Okay, so give me a sense of scale here. How do these marine ecosystems measure up as a carbon sink compared to the ones we're more familiar with, let's say, forests? Well, because these areas are so small compared to those forests, if you think about their actual storage in the plant, they're probably not that large in terms of carbon storage compared to tropical forests. But then when we get to look at this sequestration ability, this ability to bury it in the sediment below them, which can be up to 50 times more efficient than the tropical forests, then you begin to see the fact that these areas are really very important. Seagrasses bury the, uh, the carbon literally metres into the ground and it can stay there for centuries and, and millennia, whereas the tropical forests really just aren't as efficient at burying the carbon into the soil below them. Boy, we, we sure aren't very grateful in the way that we treat them. We're, we're destroying these areas like crazy, aren't we? Yes, that's very true, and uh, we have been doing so for a, a very long time. All of these coastal areas um, have really suffered from all sorts of coastal development, whether it be draining salt marshes to build cities and towns, whether it be building large port facilities or just clearing mangroves because we'd prefer to look at the beach and the water than actually mangrove forest areas. We're losing these areas significantly. So going back to looking at them through the lens of their place in the carbon cycle and their ability to sock away carbon, what are we losing when we lose those mangroves? 
The mangroves, the number that is being used uh, at the moment is that 20% of the total mangrove coverage has been lost since 1980. This is the equivalent of losing about 6,000 or nearly 7,000 square kilometres of tropical forest in sequestration capacity into the soil. So if we look at mangroves and seagrasses together, the losses we see for each of those uh, habitat types, we're losing carbon sequestration capacity at almost the same rate that we are losing tropical forest from the Amazon. It really just underlines that we need to be protecting these coastal systems worldwide. In the US, they're very important for fisheries and for coastal protection. And in many parts of the developing world, in Southeast Asia, for instance, these coastal systems provide livelihood and food for entire communities. They're also very important for allowing people to start to cope with the impacts of climate change, whether that be sea level rise or increased storms. Marshes, mangroves and seagrasses help protect them against increasing erosion and against inundation. And so this is really just underlining that we need to be really redoubling our efforts at uh, protecting these systems. Emily Pigeon with Conservation International, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You can check out all three of these studies on the carbon cycle at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, the marriage of art and science in the search for the smell of rain. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. College and high school students from around the world traveled to MIT for an unusual event called iGEM, the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. The students build novel forms of life from biological parts. The field of synthetic biology is expanding, and so is the sphere of those who use it. Living on Earth's Ike Shriskanjaraja found out what a team of artists brought to the science competition. At first glance, iGEM looks like summer camp. Kids in matching team shirts swarm around talking about their projects, except the arts and crafts here are new life forms. Well, that's true. There's some cool science going on. Mokun Thattai, an iGEM veteran who runs a leading synthetic biology lab in Bangalore, points out a team that made bacteria that glow bright yellow when they touch landmines. Then there's a team with bacteria that find and seal microscopic leaks in water pipes. If you told somebody up front that undergrads would be working on this, they'd come up with their own ideas... Not that it's going to work, right? But that even they were attempting to do it, they would laugh at you. If you were more experienced, you wouldn't try this. Yeah. There's, no, um, there's no lack of ambition. It's not that... What is the word? Gumption. Gumption, exactly. 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 Mukund advised the wildest team of all, Art Science Bangalore, team member Avni Sethi. As artists and designers, there is a certain gumption that comes into the picture. And that is sort of the basis of anything that we'd end up doing. So, teammate Upasana Simha says they felt like they could do anything. We don't know anything technical. We don't know whether anything is possible. But the fact that that's not restricting us in any which way, right? So, we've got, like, crazy imagination for bacteria. and So, we imagined all of it and then drew it with paint and paper. They dreamt and drew strange microbial creatures, lie-detecting bacteria, bugs that would destroy materialism. And one of the things that we drew was something called actinodopamine, which was uh, this bacteria that would sense love 
and as it was sense love it would start smelling of rain so that was the initial idea but their imagination hit a scientific roadblock if we had to do something like that we'd have to work with neurotransmitters and in this case dopamine and that would have been extremely complex so they simply bypassed it and then we sort of focused on the smell of rain specifically the first monsoon rain especially in the indian context rain plays such such an important part meaning from the monsoons to the bollywood romance all of it is somewhere embedded in the rains like this song from the 1994 classic mohra the raining water kindled a fire What what is the first rain like if you had to use words to describe sensual extremely sensual meaning that I can I can go on to saying to the extent of erotic first rain especially which is the steamiest description of a science project I've ever heard They had the passion and the imagination but to flesh out the poetry they needed science started off with just looking up internet saying okay what is cell what is gene <laughs> what is dna from, right from, <laughs> right from there we went through 11 standard biology de- definitions of all of these things and then slowly into the labs how do you uh, see a dna so step by step it got a little more complicated so uh, we took this little bit uh, i feel love it smells of rain to the lab and then the lab said well a lot of this seems possible but let's work backwards so working backwards from the smell of rain to its chemical source geosmin which is the metabolite that is responsible for the smell geosmin means literally smell of the earth it's created by algae that live in the dirt the team id'd the genetic instructions that make geosmin and plugged them into the common lab friendly bacterium e coli So now when you insert this into our E coli it should essentially produce geosmin. And it did. The moment we opened that little test tube and I was like mm, rain. <laughs> I just and it came back all this and we've done it it smells of rain and everything. Though it wasn't as evocative as they hoped. It was a little musty uh, but it was certainly wet. Yeah. But apparently that's how E coli kind of <laughs> smells. So maybe it smells like E coli and something else. Yeah. <laughs> But the damp bug smell isn't all that art science achieved. On the last day of the competition, the judge announced the winning teams. In determining the award for best presentation, uh, what we felt was most important was how well you're able to teach everyone through your presentation. So for teaching us about uh, extreme resourcefulness, Uh, wild creativity and raw tenacity uh, the award goes to art science bangalore we were really surprised that we won the team also succeeded in washing away the old approach of synthetic biology the judge said that like this team changed the way like one of the judges views synthetic biology so i was like wow that's pretty cool the experience changed their view of things as well dissolving the divisions between art and science and inspiring them for next year's project well when you're walking down new york city every every like 20 meters that you walk you smell a new smell <laughs> next igem next igem we will like recreate different smells in new york <laughs> for living on earth 
I'm Ike Sriskandarajan. in British Columbia has scored a North American first by becoming something called a Chita Slow, or Slow City. The Slow City is an offshoot of the slow food movement. It's a sort of quiet resistance to fast lane, drive-through homogenization. The seaside town of Cowichan Bay, north of Victoria on Vancouver Island, doesn't have a single fast food restaurant in sight. As Don Genova reports, the villagers want to keep it that way. It's a gray, rainy morning in Cowichan Bay. Seagulls call, fishing boats bob gently at the pier. A hungry sailor arriving from Dockside won't find a McDonald's or KFC in this town. Instead, eateries are called the Rock Cod Cafe and the Masthead Restaurant. Radway Fairtrade and Cow Bay's Pirate Shack take the place of The Gap and Costco. The True Grain Organic Bakery sits in the middle of the narrow strip of shops lining the seaside. A slicer carves through fresh loaves of bread as Bruce Stewart emerges from the milling room. He's owned the bakery for two years now. Yeah, my, uh, my wife Leslie and I, we were living in Toronto. And uh, for a little bit while after that, we were living in Calgary. And we decided that uh, it was time to start a family. And we realized uh, that we didn't want to raise uh, children in a, in, a, in a large city, having both grew, grown up in small communities. The previous owner had started a ball rolling, and Stuart quickly found himself leading the bid to designate Cowichan Bay a Chita Slow, Slow City. What Chita Slow is going to allow us to do is, is take all the hard work that's been done by so many different individuals and so many different groups, put it all together and allow us to use that as a framework to move forward and to do better. We could be doing a lot better in terms of recycling in the community. We could be doing a lot better in terms of uh, environmental uh, infrastructure. Chita Slow is an international network of 120 towns in 16 countries. It was founded a decade ago by mayors of some small historic towns in Italy looking for a way to preserve their culture. They were helped by the same man who founded the slow food movement, Carlo Petrini. Mara Jernigan is the president of Slow Food Canada. So they started to identify the characteristics that defined that kind of cultural identity for a town. So pedestrian walkways, you know, bicycle, not too much light pollution, and just decided to put together Chita Slow. It seems like the whole town of 3,000 is on the docks of the Couch and Bay Maritime Museum, preparing for a Chita Slow celebration. Towns must have fewer than 50,000 people to qualify. They are judged on many factors, environmental policy, land use, availability of local food ingredients, encouragement of craft products and independent businesses. Marks are even given for our community's friendliness and hospitality. Jernigan says Couch and Bay was an ideal candidate given how it stands out from neighbouring urban areas. You know, just south of here in Langford, it's full of big box stores, and we've got fast food restaurants all over the highway in Duncan. I think one day I counted, and there's 16 within about a one-kilometer radius right in the heart of downtown Duncan. And that kind of thing is really destructive to the health and the economies of, of small local places. And Couch and Bay, you know, for one reason or another is different. It's more about what, what we're not, you know. 
I'm honored to have the privilege to officially announce that Cowichan Bay is North America's first Cheetah Slow community. A crowd welcomes the announcement. The celebration made more complete with local wine, seafood, and bounty from nearby farms. The Cheetahslow Committee is a volunteer group, but keeping the nature of Cowichan Bay intact is in the hands of politicians who pass municipal bylaws and approve changes in zoning. Cowichan Bay is an unincorporated village administered by a much larger regional council which has approved big box growth in other areas. Lori Yanni Donardo sits on that council. She says a new official community plan is in the works. It's the community's input. It's not my say. It's the community um, making this document. It is a living document, but it's also if a developer comes and they have a look at at our official community plan, they'll go, "Wow, this is you know this is the style of this community. This is the design," and um, we hope to work on that. It's not just developers that will get the message. Guests to Mara Jernigan's farmhouse bed and breakfast are quick to pick up the feel of the region. By the time they leave, they say, wow, I feel like I met all these people in the community. I know where the chicken comes from. I know where the vegetables come from, where the cheese and the bread. And that's a very, very special thing that we have. Naramata in British Columbia will join Cowichan Bay to become Canada's second Cheetah Slow. And Sonoma in California will become the USA's first Cheetah Slow at the end of November. So it looks like this idea of slowing down life in small towns in North America is gathering speed. For Living on Earth, I'm Don Genova in Cowichan Bay, British Columbia. Well, you can see pictures of Cowichan Bay and learn more about slow cities at our website, loe.org. cities are, by definition, small cities. Some big cities are making environmental progress, too, by rethinking how people get around. Mexico City's Metrobus project has cut CO2 emissions by an estimated 80,000 tons a year. Living on Earth reported on Metrobus when it started up back in 2005. We spoke with former city environmental minister Claudia Scheinbaum. We have substitute 350 buses for 80 buses. And the 350 buses used to be very old buses. So if you have a reduction both in local pollutants and in greenhouse gas emissions. Mexico's Metro bus was just honored by Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government for its success. That's where Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood caught up with Mexico City Mayor Marcelo Ebrard. The mayor has ambitious plans to green the world's largest cities. You're off to Copenhagen. Uh, The 40 largest cities in the world, I believe, have come together and in a group of you mayors will be there. What do you expect to accomplish in Copenhagen as a mayor? Well, we want to to have an, an agreement between the most important cities of the world and then to propose and to pressure the national governments and the global institutions to go faster than they go right now. In basis in, in the effort that the cities already are doing. If you take a look of Toronto, even New York, or San Francisco, or 
London, every city in the world, major, the major part of them, are taking measures seriously and fastly. And this is a global issue. So we cannot wait the national governments to take the initiative because they are behind right now. So what do you do to get national governments to move? What do you do to get your own government well, to move? The, the, well, we are pressing every time to the federal government in our country. I think that they understand that they should move faster. And uh, we have an agreement because our plan in the city requires national decisions. For instance, what about the diesel? What about the car industry technology? Should be a national level decision, but the city ha have taken several measures in the past two years that move or pressure the federal government to move faster. For instance, we are going to have in Mexico City in 2011 the electrical cars from Japan and maybe, maybe United States. Maybe. I don't know. So this requires a new kind of uh, decisions on the federal level in order to supply the energy to the, the users of the, those cars and to improve the regulations about the car industry technologies in Mexico. So we are going to do this at the same time the United States, UK, and the Canadian cities. So it's going to be a really important pressure to change the regulations in all those countries. So uh, as far as I can see, the cities can lead these kind of decisions and really change things in the short term. Because otherwise we are going to wait, what, another five years? So what's going to happen? Now, if you look at the political spectrum, you're considered more progressive, more to the left, than your national government at home, which is considered more to the right, more conservative. How do you overcome that gap to get cooperation on these things? So we are talking to the young people, to the middle classes also, in order to put these green issues on the top of the agenda. And it's working on. Recently, I, I think you increased the number of days that you can't drive a car. Uh, yeah. You started to include Saturday. So that means that on any given Saturday, what, a fifth of, of your voters are unhappy with you. Well, you know, 80% of the people in the city uses, right now, public transportation facilities. 80%. So it's very different, the situation in Mexico City than here. But on the other hand, I think that if you want to really do things, several times you take decisions. There are no uh, popular measures, but can be effective. Mm -hmm. So you cannot only run the, the city with surveys in the short term. Some might say that you're positioning yourself to run for president in 2012, that if the national government doesn't perform... You'll hold up Mexico City as a green example and other issues to bolster your candidacy for president. What do you say? Yes, why not? Why not? <laughs> we need a more uh, equal society in, in Mexico. And new ideas about innovation. Let's think in the 21 century and not in the past century. So, why not? Steve Kerwood talking with Mexico City Mayor Marcelo Ebrard.
Just ahead, the United Kingdom wants more renewable energy, including tidal power. But a plan for a huge wall in a river mouth is making waves. Put a barge across like that, the barge effectiveness will not be 100 years, it probably will only be 10 years. It will just be mind-boggling. It will just silt the whole place up and turn the whole place into a vast bog. The pros and cons of harnessing the River Severn. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. This year, the European Union passed ambitious new energy standards, 20% of total power from renewable sources by 2020. That's a challenge for the United Kingdom, which is one of Europe's worst performers on renewable energy. The UK government wants to tap into the country's great potential for wind, wave, and tidal power. But proposals to harness the River Severn are so far generating mostly controversy. At 220 miles, the Severn's the UK's longest river. But what attracts clean energy engineers is the tidal action at the river's mouth. Its estuary has the second greatest tidal range in the world. Capturing the energy of that tidal flow could meet 5% of the entire country's electricity needs. But Tom Allen reports that some fear it could be disastrous for this renowned river. It's dawn on the banks of the River Severn in the southwest of England. The river flows in sluggish channels past wide sandbanks and shallow, muddy areas before emptying into the Bristol Channel and then the Atlantic. There's a roar in the distance. Downstream, dozens of surfers and kayaks ride a wave. This is no ordinary wave. This is the Seven Bore, a tidal surge caused by the funnel shape of the Seven and the enormous difference between its high and low tides, as much as 50 feet. The wave travels upstream against the current. But, uh, can't complain, got a nice little ride while it lasted. Donnie Wright has surfed the bore for 15 years. With his long grey hair and black wetsuit, he looks like an otter. It's the loneliness of the experience. It's just you and nature. It's clear that the Seven means more to Wright than just surfing. He leans forward earnestly as he searches for the words to describe the iconic river. The Seven is a river which has been flowing, determined by the tide, the diurnal tide, twice a day, in and out, the bed scars, the banks get flooded, fertilised. It is a magical place. For Wright, the river is almost sacred, something to be treated with respect. But for others, the river is a potential resource to be harnessed in the fight against climate change. The UK government is currently considering a number of renewable energy schemes for using the Severn. One of the main proposals is a barrage across the mouth of the river, a massive wall of concrete blocks 10 miles long. When the tide comes in, the barrage would trap and hold the water, then release it through hundreds of turbines. Proponents say it would generate an average of 2,200 megawatts a year. That's equal to a little more than two large power plants and enough electricity for three million people, an enormous source of clean, predictable 
renewable energy for the next century. But to the dismay of some, it would half the river's tidal range and end the run of the bore. Again, Donny Wright. This river will just die. Put a barrage across like that, the barrage effectiveness will not be 100 years, it probably will only be 10 years. It'll just silt the whole place up and turn the whole place into a vast bog. Critics of the barrage point to the Bay of Fundy in Canada, the highest tidal range in the world. There, a small barrage caused both silting and coastal erosion. On the other hand, a barrage at La Rance in France has been a reliable source of energy for 40 years without silting. Chris Morgan of the Seven Tidal Power Group, the consortium behind the UK barrage proposal, says silting shouldn't be a problem. The sediment is moving, if you like, continuously up and down the Seven Estuary. It's carried in on the high spring tide and it's carried out on the, on the low spring tide. It's not predominantly coming down the rivers. Therefore, creating a barrier across the Seven Estuary is not going to make the impounded area silt up. Experts at the Cardiff School of Engineering in Wales agree. Their studies show that after an initial deposit of about a foot of silt, only small amounts will be added over time. The Seven Tidal Power Group is counting on the barrage to operate for at least 100 years. It has to, say critics, to justify its enormous construction costs, estimated at around US$30 billion. The government is looking at how best to finance the project. Whatever they decide, it's likely to be an expensive way to produce electricity. But Chris Morgan says that the barrage is an essential part of the energy mix if the UK is going to meet its 2020 targets to combat climate change. It has the possibility to produce at least 5% of the UK's electricity from entirely renewable and carbon-free generating source. We need the electricity, we need the energy, and, and it needs to come from uh, clean and renewable sources. Clean energy from the tides? It's a compelling vision. But whether a seven barrage would provide truly green energy is debatable because of the impact it would have on wildlife and habitats. Surfers aren't the only creatures that hitch a lift on the river tides. Baby eels, elvers, use it too. These are the elvers, yeah. Horace Cook and his family have been fishing and farming elvers for decades. He holds up a handful of the tiny, transparent creatures, wriggling with energy. Marvellous animals, absolutely fascinating creature. Mysterious, oh, unbelievable. We know very little about them, let's, let's face it. When Cook was a boy, elvers were a cheap meal, fried with bacon by the thousands. They were so abundant that they were even fed to cattle. Nowadays, a pound could cost you about $150. Cook exports his elvers to help restock other rivers around the world. The Severn, he says, is ideal for the young eels. Severn has this wonderful tidal influence. We have a large tidal bore that comes up. These little animals use that energy to get up into the river. Horace isn't too worried about the barrage project. He thinks his little elvers can adapt to changes to the river. But disruption to migratory passages and injury by turbines would have a major impact on these eels, as well as on salmon and shad, according to the Sustainable Development Commission, an independent watchdog that advises the government. And other animals that depend on the tidal cycle are certain to be affected. Back on the riverbank at low tide, and the boar has washed up a thick layer of rich, slippery mud that coats everything. 
Downstream, birds are returning to the mudflats that had disappeared with the flood. These intertidal mudflats are an important habitat for thousands of wading birds and waterfowl, says Richard Inger, a researcher at the Centre for Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter. So what might just look like a plain bit of mud to us actually is a restaurant to many bird species. You know, if you if you go down below the, the top layer of the mud, there's hundreds and thousands of different species of, of, of worms and arthropods that use this as, as as their home. And that's what the birds go for, you know, it's it's a real a real larder for Inga says the barrage would permanently flood these mud flats, closing the larder door. If the barrage is put across the whole of, of the seven, there will be a loss of large areas of, of intertidal habitat, which will undoubtedly impact a lot of the species that, um, that use these areas as, as feeding grounds. But perhaps surprisingly, Richard Inga actually supports the barrage proposal. Finding new ways of producing energy is always going to be difficult, and there always are going to be some environmental impacts. But if you look, think of this on, the, on a national scale and on an international scale, the importance of reducing carbon emissions and the effects of climate change are, are far more important than small-scale impacts at the local level. A majority of the public agree. In a survey conducted by the Sustainable Development Commission in 2007, 58% of people were in favour of a barrage and only 15% were against. But the loss of such a unique habitat remains the major sticking point for leading environmental groups – they say that you don't have to choose between combating climate change on the one hand and loss of precious habitats on the other. Instead, they've waded into the engineering side of the debate, backing alternatives to the barrage. Friends of the Earth are backing an offshore lagoon design. Instead of a wall, round or oval lagoons would stand freely in the river estuary, filling up and emptying without stopping the tide. And the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has helped fund a tidal reef proposal by engineer and inventor Rupert Armstrong Evans. I can go and play with the sluice gate. At his ramshackle Cornish homestead, Evans shows me his garden, surrounded by watermills and barns filled with hydroelectric machinery. Yes, these are all, all different machines, all around 100 years old. He founded one of the country's first renewable energy companies in the 1970s. The company specialises in small-scale hydroelectric schemes, including community projects in Brazil, Africa and India. Financing his reef proposal has meant taking out loans and remortgaging some of his property, but he feels passionately that an alternative to the barrage must be found. If you build a, a barrage and you get it wrong, you can't do anything about it. You have millions of tonnes of concrete there. Short of blowing it up, you're stuck with it. Mr Evans says that his low-lying reef would generate just as much energy as the big barrage, but without the environmental impacts. By harnessing a greater volume of water, rather than creating a large height of water, it would avoid disrupting the tides as dramatically. Less of the mudflats would be submerged and the slower turbines would kill fewer fish. He says that a new approach to engineering is needed, one that starts with the environment, not the machinery. I don't think that it's a major problem to make the engineering work in a way that is sympathetic to the seven, so that you're working alongside the natural rhythm, if you like, of the tide, rather than being a monolithic structure that imposes itself on the river and can cause, you know, an environmental disaster. Much to Evans's dismay, 
the large engineering consortium of Rolls-Royce and Atkins has been awarded government funding for a strikingly similar scheme. The Seven Embryonic Technologies Fund was recently launched, giving $800,000 to three proposals that promise to harness the Seven without having major impacts on the environment. But, so far, the government seems to favour the more established large barrage design, despite warnings from its own environment agency that it should not be built because it would be ecologically damaging. Time is running out. With the 2020 emissions reductions targets looming, the pressure is on to get started on one of the projects as soon as possible. The government has said it will make a decision next year. Until then, the debate about how best to harness the energy of the remarkable Seven promises to be as turbulent and unpredictable as the river itself. For Living on Earth, I'm Tom Allen in Unimon 7. Severn Boar is a unique phenomenon with its own unique name. Many features of the landscape carry intriguing and evocative names, as we learn in our occasional series, Home Ground. Poet Kim Stafford gives us his definition of choke point. The choke point, the Achilles heel in a dynamic system where forces of flow and resistance bottleneck, has become a notion used in a variety of contexts. For land travelers, the choke point may be a narrow defile where a path crosses a ridge at a point hemmed tightly by flanking cliffs. For hydrologists, the choke point may be a constriction in a stream channel where sedimentation builds as flow is blocked. The restless drama of such a position in stream or path has caused this term to become a metaphor attractive to military strategists economists, and computer consultants, whereby, for example, the clog of email may threaten worker efficiency, just as a wilderness hiker may need to exhale to slip through a tight spot. Essayist and poet Kim Stafford lives in Portland, Oregon. His description of choke point comes from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape compiled by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwarton. For most Americans, Thanksgiving dinner means turkey. But as Mark Seth Linder cautions, if you're thinking of making a meal out of a wild turkey, you better think twice. Turk, turk, turkey comes jerk, jerk, lurking on, tip to toe, cautious, like ice just itching to melt. Through parkland, under low-lying limbs, drip, drip, dripping with dew, patient, like mud settling where deer galumphing stir it up still water, driving slow and low and through and through from tall grass to scrub, look at them go, tough, bad. Ain't no butterball, ain't no song, sparrow. Checking out the quiet part of the woods ahead of would-be girlfriends, might-be lovers, always moving cover to cover. Then, right behind, taking their sweet time, wouldn't you know, here those birdie birds come, tuts, tuts, strutting their stuff, proud and tall and don't going to be no one's, I say no one's stuffing. They might look sweet. First best think on this. 
before you get to the eats have to beat down 20 pounds of lean, mean muscle armored like a weaponeer. Got spurs on the backs of their legs, sharp as a thorn. Got a beak that means business. Fly straight up, chase someone down the block, wreck someone's whole day. So back away. Keep on licking your lips, that's someone gonna be you. Morning catches the sheen, that shoulder's back, cusp of wing, iridescent as mother of pearl. But these ain't no pretty, pretty peacocks. No birds of paradise make a nice... Don't be calling these turkeys turkey to their face, feathers broad and flat as dragon scoots, breath like mace, neck like a reptile, long and ropey, glaring, staring, violet blue and crimson red, horn of flesh in the center of the head, bald as a vulture, eye as dark as obsidian glass, feet that leave a four-inch track, picking their toes with a clickety-clack. Like those who have risen from the sea and crawled back in, seal and sea lion, whale and dolphin, some take to the sky only to return to land. Wild turkey, that jabberwock, weighty presence, work of art, less than the sum, more than the parts. Mark Seth Linder writes a column called Salt Marsh Diary. To see some of his photographs, go to our website, loe.org. We leave you this week in the apple orchards of Vermont. Now, if you're not drinking wild turkey with your Thanksgiving feast, you might find that New England cider could be a fitting accompaniment. Living on Earth's Quincy Campbell sampled the sounds and taste of the hot ginger apple cider brewed by Shelburne Orchards in Shelburne, Vermont. we got 50 gallons of sweet cider here and 40 pounds of ginger freshly ground up this morning and we cook it in here about 180 degrees for eight hours and then we're going to bottle it tonight all the burn none of the bugs Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Annie Glosser, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Trish Kanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Special thanks this week to the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at loe.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow on the web at paxworld.com. 
P-R-I, Public Radio International.